This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Gabriela Garcia, author of the novel of Women and Salt. I was really interested in sort of writing against the trope that exists about immigrant mothers as sort of these sacrificing and suffering mothers. We'll be back with Gabriela Garcia in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Gabriela Garcia, author of the novel of Women and Salt. Her writing has appeared in Best American Poetry, Tin House, Iowa Review, Michigan Quarterly Review, and elsewhere. Garcia is the daughter of immigrants from Cuba and Mexico and was raised in Miami and now lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Her work as a migrant justice organizer influenced her novel of Women in Salt, which tells the story of a multi-generational family of women that begins with a 19th century Cuban cigar factory worker named Maria Isabel and skips a few generations to Dolores, who is married to a violent man in Cuba and must make huge sacrifices to survive. Her daughter Carmen, who immigrates to America and ends up very wealthy in Miami, and her daughter Jeanette, who struggles with drug addiction in present-day Florida, round out the generations. Carmen and Jeanette intersect with another mother and daughter duo, Gloria and Anna, who are originally from El Salvador. They both get deported to Mexico and must survive there as they struggle to determine their next move. 
We began the interview with Gabriela Garcia talking about how she started the novel and what she was thinking about. I knew going into it that I that I didn't want to write in a sort of traditional Western story structure. I think when I started, I wasn't entirely sure what the what the book's shape would ultimately be. And when I started, I sort of did envision it as a linked short story collection. And as I started writing, some of the chapters can function as sort of standalone short stories. But as I was writing, I ended up sort of incorporating um, some chapters that don't necessarily work that way. And I think eventually I just gave myself permission to sort of not try to predefine what the book was going to be and to just sort of let those pieces work together. Because the book some of it is in the past, but I wouldn't really call it a historical saga because there there are just these like little glimpses into the past into chapters, and most of it is set in in contemporary times. But I sort of wanted it to feel the way memory feels or the way stories are kind of passed down in this fractured way. There are all of these kind of spaces of unknowing between chapters. So that's sort of what I was thinking about in terms of the structure. And what about the women, your characters? What was driving you to investigate their lives? When I started, there were so many different things I was interested in. I was coming off of several years working as a migrant rights organizer and working with a lot of women in detention. And so that was on my mind. I was also traveling to Cuba a lot, where my mother is from, and talking to people in Cuba almost on a daily basis. And that was on my mind a lot. You know, I was thinking about growing up in Miami and that was on my mind. And so there, there are all of these, you know, very different threads, but I kind of wanted to find a way to sort of just write into all of the things that I was obsessing over or thinking about all the time. One of the questions that I walked away with that I got out of the book in my reading was the question of what do we inherit? What's passed down to us through our blood? And I mean that not in the sense of physical objects, although your book does have some physical objects, but I mean epigenetically as well as in story, like what's in our DNA? What what do we pass down Yeah, I was thinking about that a lot. You know, you're right. Like there's been all of this research around like epigenetics and how trauma can literally be passed down generationally. But also I was, I was thinking a lot about stories, you know, and how we're affected by both the stories we know, um, the ones we're born into, and also the ones that we don't have access to. And in the, in the novel, a lot of the characters are sort of interacting with the past without really having access to the past. They're sort of interacting. These stories are sort of interacting with each other um, without the links always being clear to the characters themselves. And I think that's part of what I was thinking of. What you inherit that you have no access to, but that shapes you just as much. I think that's so interesting to that, that concept because You know, I often wonder about all the ancestors that I don't know, like what ways might I be like them or what ways might I not be like them or how is something they have done impacted me? Yeah, I guess I think I think about it like even even when you're getting those stories about, you know, your family history or your past or your origins, like it's always filtered through a certain perspective. It's always kind of filtered through which pieces of those stories survived, you know, just sort of the way that that history works in, in and of itself. And so it feels like even when you have some access to those stories, like you can never truly, truly access the past or get the full picture of it. I think I was I was thinking about that a lot. These characters are sort of born into the world and carrying carrying all of this weight already um, of the historical past, the political past, the you know individual past of their mothers. And they, they don't have the full picture of it or they have a version of it that, that is what they've been told or they don't have a full analysis of their own story. So I was really interested in that, sort of what people have access to and what they don't. And, and even in the sort of one of the opening chapters, the one that takes place in the 19th century, 
you know, Maria Isabel, who is working in a cigar workshop, is hearing all of these stories that are read to the cigar workers. And, you know, she's sort of gaining this, this kind of freedom through that literature, but also being fully aware that it's kind of coming from a very particular gaze. Like most of, most of the books that are read to those workers are coming from European white male authors or European descended Cuban writers, which is, which are the actual books that were mostly read to um, cigar workers during that time. And, you know, I was thinking about that too, a lot, like how those stories and those mythologies are shaped by who is telling the story. As we were talking about what gets passed down, I had marked a paragraph that relates to what we were saying. And so you have these several generations of, of women that started with the Maria Isabella. And there's a few generations in the middle that get, and then we get to the trio of a grandmother, mother, and daughter that are focused on in the book. And those are Dolores, Carmen, and Jeanette. And Jeanette is in the present day generation and she's dealing with drug addiction. She lives in Miami and her mother, Carmen, had left Cuba and won't really talk about her mother, won't talk about her family, just wants nothing to do with them and seems to have really become very successful in America and then at the same time is really struggling with her daughter's drug addiction and and wanting to help her. And on page 38, you have a paragraph talking sort of about this loss and what we inherit. And I'm wondering if you would read that. It's, It's in the middle. Jeanette suspects a deeper loss too, one her mother won't express. Her mother laughs with abandon sometimes before catching herself, before recasting her face with dignity, poise. Jeanette suspects a different side of her mother, a smooth easiness unworn by the hard edge of new worlds, lapping at the shore of the life she abandoned. Jeanette has seen this loss in photos my Davis has sent, photos browned with age, her mother's youthful gaze like time will never stop, like the future is an abstraction, a given. And Jeanette has wondered whether loss unspoken becomes an inherited trait. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking about. Jeanette has wondered whether loss unspoken becomes an inherited trait. Because even the people around you have so much life. Like her mother had so much life. You can never know really the life of your mother. I think there's a point for a lot of people where, you know, childhood is so sort of narcissistic and self-obsessed. And then, you know, you you grow up and you sort of realize that that this person is is far beyond just your mother. Like there's a whole world that you don't have access to. I was really sort of thinking about that too. All the ways that we have a limited understanding of our own family. Yeah, and I think on the flip side of that, I mean, I don't think it's the direct opposite, but is that question also of who are we responsible for? Are we responsible to connect upwards? Like for Carmen, she didn't talk to her mother anymore. Was that Jeanette's responsibility to keep that or vice versa? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think Jeanette struggles with that in the book, you know, she's sort of betraying her mother by connecting with her grandmother I think part of it is that she like seeks to understand the full story or like wants to get at some truth that she doesn't have access to, but also she's, she's not able to fully, fully grasp that truth. And in some ways, none of those characters know, know the full truth. Like Carmen doesn't know the full truth. Um, Dolores, the grandmother doesn't know the full truth. Jeanette doesn't know the full truth. They're sort of all just have their own version of, of a story and of what happened. And I think that can be true to how we understand anything, you know, like we have a, we have a very particular lens and perspective shaped by all of our own experiences that limits perspective on any situation. And I think you see this too, when Jeanette travels back to Cuba in her relationship with her cousin, Maidelis, who grew up in Cuba, they're sort of both experiencing Cuba in such a different way and unable to really see each other. Jeanette can't can't shake off like her her own perspective as somebody who grew up in the US and is and is traveling here um, and feels like she has this emotional connection to a place that isn't really 
hers. And then, you know, her cousin, my is, is experiencing her from the other side. And so I think, you know, I was just thinking a lot about perspective and the limits of perspective and what truth even means. I think it also can bring you to a place of compassion if you can be aware enough that you don't know the whole truth of other people's lives. And it's something that we saw in Carmen toward the end because Carmen experienced some unbelievable loss that probably changed her. She was probably a little harder, a little more black and white at first. And the other lineage of women were these two women in Miami named Gloria and Anna. And Gloria gets taken away by ICE in the beginning of the book. She's from El Salvador, but she ends up being sent back to Mexico and her young daughter, Anna, wasn't home when that happened. And so when she came home from school, she, um, her mom wasn't home. And so Jeanette, who's Carmen's daughter, takes her in. But Carmen is nervous for Jeanette for uh, various reasons and basically says, turn her in to the authorities. But as we see towards the end, Carmen ends up having this incredible compassion for Anna. And part of that is maybe partly her own losses, but also realizing that everyone's story is so much more complex than we think on first glance. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of what we're talking about, like sort of being born into a story um, or or a mythology and that shaping perspective, like there is this idea or this mythology or this story around the quote unquote immigrant experience which I I think is a sort of mythology. Like, I think there are many immigrant experiences and they vary pretty drastically based on things like race and class and what's pushing the migration. And, And so there's this sense for Jeanette, you know, when she's, when she takes in Anna, that her mother's going to have like an automatic solidarity with Gloria and Hannah. And that's not what happens. And so I think that that's part of it. The perspective is so, is so different for Carmen who, you know, Cuban Cubans had a, a really sort of easy path to migration in the U S for many years. As, as long as you sort of touch ground in the U S you weren't on an automatic path to citizenship and, and there were all of these sort of resources available to Cuban immigrants that weren't available to other migrants. And so the sense that there will be an automatic solidarity is just sort of really flawed, but Jeanette doesn't automatically see that either because she has a sort of different perspective too as like the daughter of, of immigrants. And then I think you're right. Like I think in the end, you know, not that Carmen has changed drastically, but I think has a different sense of not having the full story or yeah, I don't even know if it's like compassion as much as just sort of, there's a kind of like resignation that maybe her sense of, of the world is not the sense of the world. Even Jeanette early on when she is faced with Anna being like her mom, not being there and her being the only adult around that could potentially take her in for the night says to herself, like basically good immigrant, bad immigrant. Like she's questioning that. It seems like a crazy statement, but I understand where she's coming from, from these things that you're saying. I mean, I just remember when I first started working on organizing work with, with people who are facing deportation and there was this push to sort of constantly talk about these dreamer students who were graduating from college and had accomplished all of these things and kind of just framing a sort of respectability politics around immigration and why people deserve to live free of the threat of deportation. That's absurd in many ways, you know, because we're all sort of born in this country as citizens and the idea that we're like worthy of a life in peace only because we've accomplished these sort of things that are valued on a societal level is like untrue for anyone other than people facing deportation and so Jeanette is sort of thinking about that herself like she's trying to form these this story about Gloria and who she is to sort of 
justify her desire to to figure out a way for for Anna to be to be safe. And I think it's sort of pointing to that dichotomy that's kind of messed up. So you were mentioning earlier um, these books. So um, back to Maria Isabel, she is the matriarch of the major characters in your novel. And she is 1866 in Cuba. She's mulata. She works in a factory. She is the only female in this cigar factory in the workshop. And they have this person called a, a lector who, who reads them books as they rolled cigars. They read books and newspapers. And I didn't know such people existed. And I found it very enchanting that it's entertaining, but then it does get into politics. I'm wondering if you could just talk about this, this role of the lector. I mean, it's the thing that still exists to this day. People who read choose cigar rollers and in that time, they were reading, you know, both literature and also newspapers, and some of them were aimed at at cigar workers. And so I was just sort of fascinated by that interplay between literature and the working class and, and political movements of the time. That chapter was actually sparked by a trip that I took to Cuba, because I went to this museum and they had on display these letters from Victor Hugo to Cuban independence fighters and women in Cuba. And I was just so, so fascinated by that sort of dialogue between an author and, and people who were, who were reading his books in a very, very different place and different context. And, and like I said, like Maria Isabel sort of gains access to to a whole bunch of ideas to a whole sense different sense of her world through through this literature and at the same time like recognizes that it's sort of all coming from this very particular gaze even when the literature is speaking about a woman like her it's it's coming from you know this european descended white writer in cuba Maria Isabel is young. She ends up falling in love with the lector or if not total love, at least resignation that she's going to be with him. The man she found was Antonio and most people there want to leave. And he said, I think it was like through his perspective, kind of in Maria Isabel, Antonio had found a way to flee without lusting after other shores. Yeah, I mean, I think... For her, she's sort of working within the bounds of the society that she was born into at that time. And so I think for her, like the marriage isn't, is a sort of freedom and it isn't necessarily about love, but it's sort of how she survives, how she finds the space to kind of pursue the things she wants to pursue, like learning to read. And you sort of see echoes of this in other relationships um, eventually, you know, Carmen admits to her, to Jeanette, that she sort of married her father in part because it offered her a sort of financial wealth or comfort. And so I was, I was sort of thinking about these, the, the way marriage sort of functioned really differently during this time, but also sort of echoed even into like the present day narrative and can you talk a little bit about the books? So basically, one of the ways that Antonio wooed Maria Isabel was through books and reading to her and these copies of books that he read. I believe it was Les Miserables and also um, one by a Cuban writer called Cecilia Valdez, I think, mm -hmm. um, gets passed down. And how did that become something you wanted to tangibly put in the book as it's kind of like an object and a symbol that, that goes through all of these generations. Yeah. I think, you know, like we were talking about previously, like I was thinking a lot about stories and how they get passed down. So I think like a literal physical object and a story passed down sort of felt like an entryway into that conversation for me. And, you know, I looked at actual books that were read to cigar workers during that time. And I was, I was just really fascinated by that entire history because 
my, my family was really into cigars when I was growing up. Um, my dad smoked a lot of cigars and I remember being around a lot of these Cuban cigars like Monte Cristos and Romeo y Julietas. And I had no idea that the names literally came from books that were really popular in the cigar rolling factories. And so that history was just, just super interesting to me. And so those two books that, that get passed down were some of the, you know, most popular books that, that cigar rollers were being read. And then Cecilia Valdez is a sort of iconic book in Cuba. Like there's a, you know, there's a statue of the character of Cecilia Valdez in um, Via Havana, which is like the main sort of tourist center in, in Havana. And I, I was interested in the way like something can, can mean so, so many different, you know, a story can mean so, so many different things to different people. Like Maria Isabel sort of connects really deeply to this story and it means something to her, a kind of escape. And then throughout the generations, like this book, you know, there, there's a great moment where Jeanette and Maidelis are sort of talking about this book and Jeanette is thinking of it as this sort of like financial windfall possibly, you know, this like antique book and Maidelis um, is seeing it as just like a book, like an old book, you know, it doesn't have any like specific emotional resonance or, or significance to her. And so, you know, this same item sort of means very different things to different people um, throughout time. There's also an inscription in, I believe it's in Les Miserables, that says, weakness, no, we are force. And that inscription is also important. Where did that come from? Yeah, so that's actually from that letter that Victor Hugo wrote to um, Cuban independence fighters. And in the novel, that gets sort of mixed with also people in this family adding like their own words to this book and sort of reconfiguring those words. And I, I think that's part of what I was thinking about, you know, that, that Maria Isabel was getting, was hearing these stories even about herself from all of, from this very particular gaze. But I was interested in like, whether some of those words can be reclaimed, whether that's even possible. And then you see that in sort of the characters adding their own words to this inscription and what it means to different people at different points. Um, so I was, I was really struck by those lines too. Like I just, I loved that idea of force, you know, and so much of the book is about forces, historical forces. And it just, it, it felt like a really easy entry point into that conversation about stories and, and historical forces. So not all the mothers in your story, actually many of them, aren't really like 100% or even any percent at all into into motherhood. Some of them question motherhood. Some of them feel like because of the circumstances in their lives, they want something so different than their child that they don't want to be a mother. And that was the case with Gloria and Anna. And again, Gloria is the one who got taken away by ice. And she she didn't want that fate um, to happen to Anna. I mean, she does get sent back to, well, she gets sort of sent back to El Salvador. They sort of drop her in Mexico and kind of like good luck getting the rest of the way back and they end up staying in Mexico. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little more about Gloria and, and her character. I was really interested in sort of writing against the trope that exists about immigrant mothers as sort of these sacrificing and suffering mothers. And not that these characters don't suffer or sacrifice in their own ways, but you know, there, there's so much more than that. And like Gloria sometimes feels like she's, she sort of daydreams about not even being a mother. And I just, I think I, I just wanted to show the complexities that exist, especially because I think there, there are these sort of tropes that exist. Yeah. And Gloria, she loved birds and she, she just had this own 
kind of inner life that we see. And she ends up in Texas in kind of a, a place, like a holding place for for immigrants that are about to be deported. And she basically gets forced into signing a document saying that she'll leave. And she goes on to a small town in Mexico and stays there to work, ends up being a maid for an American woman who's married to a Mexican man and lives in a town that I understand is is either the exact town or similar to where your father is from and that you visited as a child? Yeah, so she's living in Irapuato, Mexico, which, which is where my father grew up and where I've spent a lot of time, mm-hmm. where all of my Mexican side of my family lives. And what was special about either your childhood memories about that or, or placing her there? Well, I mean, my grandmother's house is sort of, right behind the train route that La Bestia, which is sort of the, you know, one of the trains that goes toward the U.S. border, uh, the the Mexican border with the U.S., uh, goes along those tracks. And so, you know, I remember, like, even as a child, going with my father to where, where the train is and talking to some of the migrants who were, were there and about to the train again. And I was also sort of thinking about, you know, when I was doing this work, when I was doing deportation defense work, I worked on various cases where people who were coming from Central America were deported to Mexico. You know, there, there are all of these sort of complexities in the novel with kind of outsiders, you know, like there's, there's Jeanette, as the daughter of Cuban immigrants going to Cuba and how her experience is seen by my babies. There's this U.S. quote-unquote expat in Mexico. And then there's Gloria and Anna, who are Salvadoran in Mexico. And all of the sort of fraught tensions that exist between Central American migrants in Mexico, um, which those tensions are real. So I sort of wanted to place them in this, in this space that is, that is really complex. There's this like white U.S. woman. Um, there's the, her Mexican husband. And then there's Gloria and Anna who've been deported from the U.S. to Mexico and are Salvadoran and how those lives sort of clash. It's almost like a liminal space for them because they're in between the world that Anna really knows. She grew up in America and doesn't really, I mean, she came there from El Salvador, but she was so young. She speaks English really well. They're not going back to the homeland that she has no connection to that is very dangerous for them. So they're kind of in this liminal way station where they're lucky enough to get, you know, a job and a place to live with this expat who. Seems like she's kind to them, but she has such a limit to that kindness and such a limit to her supposed understanding of them. And it's like they're almost like an outsider twice. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And I think it also sort of speaks to the way that like, you know, even when we use the word immigration versus like migrant or migration, it sort of supposes that the U.S. is this ultimate goal and permanent state. And, you know, even for for Gloria, like what she's seeking is just a kind of stability. Um, It's not necessarily that the U.S. is this sort of magnet of of hope or goodness. It's, It's that she just wants like stability. She just wants a way to earn a living and live, you know, peacefully with her daughter. And so, you know, that, that becomes the U S and then it becomes Mexico. And then for Anna, it's seeking to, to come back to a place that feels like home for her. And you mentioned that Jeanette went to Cuba. So she does, she goes to Cuba. She meets the grandmother that her mother, Carmen never speaks of. She meets her cousin from her mother's sister, her mother's sister's daughter. Um, And she's kind of 
an outsider, although I'm not really sure if she quite grasped that. And and when she's there, you see incidences of, of racism and and desire for for her cousin to have something different than she does have living in Cuba, but Jeanette maybe being unaware of that. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's like a situation where they're just sort of unable to see each other. And Jeanette has this sort of romanticized idea of of Cuba. And Maydelis sort of has some very like specific material needs that she's that she's seeking. And they're just unable to really, truly sort of have a real conversation. Which I imagine could be the case again and again, regardless of country, although country is definitely a big part of her going there when you're meeting up with relatives that you've never met and know nothing about, that the disconnect between maybe what they are in your dreams and then what they are in reality is can be difficult. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, I think the same thing happens on both ends. Like Jeanette sort of goes in expecting Cuba to, to be a certain thing for her or to answer certain questions for her and it just ends up creating more confusion within herself and then I think Maidelis also sort of goes into it expecting Jeanette to sort of be a certain person for her to have a certain connection with Jeanette that she ends up realizing is is not real and the men in the novel are not very good you have a lot of drinkers abusers molesters violence with the men just wanted to ask you about that I mean I think the men play different roles like you're right some of them are violent and abusive then there are others like Antonio who are who aren't necessarily that but aren't are also not like you know revered savior figures and I was sort of just interested in really centering the women and how they survive within these often violent patriarchal societies. And, you know, you see that even from the family trees that you see in the very beginning that are just solely matrilineal. And I think maybe that impulse comes in part from the fact that I grew up in a very matrilineal family. Like my mother is a single mother Um, I have all sisters. She has all sisters. My maternal grandmother has all sisters. And I just grew up around a lot of women who supported my mom, who were part of my life as I was growing up. And I just, I didn't feel a lack in that. And I sort of wanted to write a novel that traced what it's like for, for all of these generations of women, um, to live in this sort of violent, misogynist world, but just center those women, you know, and their survival and their bonds more than the men who are there, but are sort of there in the periphery. So tell me about the salt. What's the, of women and salt? What does the salt mean to you? I, you know, I came up with the title and it's not like a literal title sort of called from anything in the novel. I think I was thinking about it sort of, you know, I write poetry in addition to fiction. And I think I was thinking of the title in sort of the same way that I think about titles and poetry. Um, And so I went through the novel and kind of looked at elements that came up more than once. And salt was one of those. And I was more thinking about sort of the evocative feeling of the words and the emotion than I was a sort of literal reference to the text. Um, And salt comes up multiple times and sort of different things at different points in the novel. And I knew that I wanted women in the title as a novel that that is written only from the perspective of the women characters. And I just just liked how it sounded (laughs) together, honestly. I was thinking a lot about tears in the ocean too when I hear that word. Yeah, I think it can evoke so many different different things. Is there anything else about the novel you want to talk about that we didn't get to before I get to the final questions? It's been so great to hear all of the different reactions that people have to the novel. And a lot of people sort of talk about the novel as like a novel that's about immigration or immigrants, which 
I think is interesting because maybe half or more of the characters in the novel are not immigrants, are like the children of immigrants or just, you know, people living in Cuba or in Mexico. And I think that's something that I'm often, you know, not asked about. I think it's, it, I, I think it's less about immigration as it is about the sort of bonds between all of these different women and like the complexities of those relationships. And I think what we were talking about at the very beginning of the things that you pass down and the things you inherit doesn't matter what country you're from. It's like the country of your family. Yeah, I love that. Kind of random, but something I appreciated so much about your book was that there was a table of contents. And I feel like a lot of books these days do not have them. And I kind of love them. And I'm wondering if that was something that um, they asked you about or you just wrote it and so it was included? I really wanted that, you know. You know, there were points where people questioned whether the chapter should be titled or there should be a table of contents, but I fought really hard for that. Um, and I also love books that have a table of contents and chapter titles. I think I just really, I really love titles and like the work that they can do for a chapter or for a story or for a poem. So I wanted, I, you know, I wanted those titles to sort of be a part of, of those chapters. Yeah, it makes sense because they're very poetic, but I feel like so many books don't have them anymore. And I just, I like when there's a table of contents. I think you're right. Like it's sort of unfashionable now to like title chapters. I guess I just, I'm, I'm just drawn to the, like the actual work that a title can do you know, to sort of contextualize the rest of the writing or to add like an additional element to the writing. Like for me, it wasn't just about titling the chapters. It was sort of about the titles also functioning with the content. And also your cover is so beautiful. Yeah. So the cover artist is Adalis Martinez. As soon as I saw it, it just connected to every piece of of the writing that I was doing. And I was so like moved by, by the artwork. She actually passed away last year at a very young age. So I just feel, you know, I just feel like this is a, this is a piece of, of her art that I'm always going to cherish so much. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, actually I was going to read from a poem, if that's okay. I'm going to read from like one of my favorite poems that came out in, I think, 2013. Um, it's a Carl Phillips poem and it's called Your Body Down in Gold. You can make of the world's parts something elemental. You can say the elements mean something still worth fucking a way forward for. Maybe the dream coming true. Maybe the dream true to form coming undone all over again. You can do that or not while a sail un unfurls or a door blows shut. So it turns out there's more of a difference between love and deep affection than you'd have chosen. So what? Remember the days of waking to disasters various and of at least, in part, your own doing and saying aloud to no one, I have decided how I would like to live my life and it isn't this way. And how you actually believed it. You'd change the world would. Man with a morning dove in one eye, rough seas in the other. Lately the light, more than usual it seems, finds us brokenly. I say, let's brokenly start shouldering the light right back. Tell me more about why you chose that. It's a poem that's doing so much of, of what I admire in, in writing. Like the sound and the rhythm work so well. The movement works so well between both the content and the way the actual words are functioning. You know, there's movement in the poem, like a sail unfurling. Um, I like the way it sort of mixes these really beautiful sort of natural images with all the, also the profane. I like the even the sort of invention of words like brokenly 
the way light is functioning in it. I think I just just admire the turn between what's literally called elemental in the poem, these images, and then this feeling, this emotion. I just, I was so like moved by this poem when I read it. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is actually a chapter in the book that started off as a kind of flash piece that I published in Zizaba. So it changed a ton from that to now. And it's from a chapter called Other Girl. The first time I see the woman, she is buying cold cream. What she wants, she says, is a moisturizer that doesn't feel heavy, doesn't sit on her skin like so much weight. I lay out her options. Whipped argon oil, cold pressed and refined. Our new micro-beading exfoliating lotion with gentle 7% alpha hydroxy, the best-selling hyaluronic acid plus B vitamins gel with all-day stay technology patent pending. Her red fingernails tap the counter as she slides a credit card with her other hand. She buys all of them. I can't take my eyes off her. She reminds me of my mother. I think this is what draws me to her, what makes it so I can't take my eyes off her. I haven't seen her, my mother, in a month. I have only one day off from the store each week and I have to choose, spend my day off with her or with Mario. My mother doesn't know about Mario. She only knows I have a job again. I haven't lost it again. The woman reminds me of my mother because she looks breakable, but also immaculate breakable and immaculate. I see her almost every single week and she always shops during the day like so many other women. She wears red soled heels, carries snakeskin bags, looks like she smells of Chanel number no. five. No, something even more expensive. That Jean Pateau thousand dollar bottle with ambergris from sperm whales and 8,000 jasmine flowers. I make $10 an hour, but the lexicon of wealth still roots in me. I can't scrub my childhood off. You're simply and unobtrusively classy, like a Celine bag, I say to her in a daydream. And tell me more about choosing that. Started off as sort of a shorter piece, and I ended up completely changing it and expanding it um, for the novel. And I was sort of thinking about so many so many different pieces of Jeanette's identity in that chapter of, of the ways, you know, class has shaped her, of the ways an abusive relationship has shaped her, of the ways that, you know, falling in love and falling into addiction are sort of mirroring each other. And I struggled with it, you know? I wrote the shorter piece and then I ended up going back and feeling like I needed to add a lot more pages. Where do you write? So in pre-pandemic times, I loved writing in coffee shops. In post-pandemic times, I write in in my house, which feels difficult a lot, you know? But I really like writing at night. Like I sort of like when I feel like everyone is asleep and I just have like a space of, of quiet mentally. And that's usually when I write. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I think I like turning to a lot of other art forms. You know, um, lately I've been watching a lot of movies. I subscribed to the Criterion channel, which just has like great movies, art house films, you know, older films. And I also draw and paint sometimes. And I feel like switching sort of gears mentally and still engaging my creativity helps me get out of my head a little bit in terms of the writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a core group of friends who I sort of trust and I know their writing and I know how they read my work and we send each other work and those are the people who I sort of always send my work to. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, I think, I think, that I think about the way that I sort of engage with literature. There are things that I 
that, you know, I categorically know are, are good, maybe craft wise or whatever, but that just don't, don't work for me, you know? Um, or there are, you know, things that all of my friends love and I don't. Um, so I think ultimately like taste is such a, such a big part of it and, and such an individual factor. So I think, you know, I went into publishing a book knowing full well that it might be something that works for some people and doesn't for other people. And I'm sort of okay with that. What is your favorite word? I think it's ice. I like how it, I just like the sound, you know, I like the I sound in it. And it's actually not a word that I use often because I don't even like ice in my drinks. (laughs) But I I like when I have an opportunity to say it. Yeah, so the cover artist is Adalis Martinez. And she, as soon as I saw it, it just connected to every piece of, of the writing that I was doing. And I was so like moved by by the artwork. She actually passed away last year at a very young age. So I just feel, you know, I just feel like this is a, this is a piece of, of her art that I'm always going to cherish so much. Well, Gabriella, thank you so much for your time and for talking to me. I'm so appreciative. Yeah, no, this was great. Thank you so much. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Gabriela Garcia, author of the novel of Women and Salt. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Nicole Dennis-Ben, whose novel Here Comes the Sun tells the story of two generations of Jamaican women on the verge of losing their home to a new resort while also confronting long-hidden family scars. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts in keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with S. Kirk Walsh, Joshua Henkin, Christine Mangan, and Kevin McElvoy. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.